1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sam Newton, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Matthew Clare about his new book, Privilege and Punishment, How Race and Class Matter in a Criminal Court. Matthew Clare, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sam. Matt, why don't you tell um, our listeners a little bit about yourself?
2: Uh, So uh, I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Stanford, um, and I also hold a courtesy appointment at the law school. Um, And I'm a cultural sociologist broadly, so I'm interested in meanings and interactions, um, and particularly how they uh, sort of constitute inequality, um, but also how they potentially reproduce and maybe even challenge forms of inequality. And so most of my work has looked at Uh, cultural forms in the legal system. Um, And so my book uh, emerges from my dissertation where I specifically looked at defendants um, and their interactions with attorneys and how the attorney client relationship constitutes a form of inequality for many people and also reproduces inequalities through the legal process.
1: Yeah, thank you, Matt. As a former public defender myself, I was a public defender for 15 years and I found your book, the most realistic uh, study I've seen that reflected my experience and the experience of defendants that I uh, represented. I, I saw echoes of many people and, and, and all the different types that you you mentioned. So, well, how did you come to write "Privilege and Punishment"?
2: Yeah, so I actually appreciate the fact that you were a former public defender, and you know, um, I've spoken to a lot of public defenders after publishing the book, and of course, as we'll probably get into. Um, Three sort of people that I really followed in depth when I embedded in the public defender's office in Boston, um, who I got to know really well. I sent the book to them, and also um, got to send them a little bit of the book before it was published. And what really sort of made me feel that I got things right was not only did they see themselves in in it, and it was accurate and reflected something that they understood, but it also helped them see what they were doing in a different, in new light. So I appreciate. That, that you also sort of got that from the book as well. Um, but for me, you know, I'm someone who actually does not have a JD. I'm not a lawyer. Um, and so starting this project really emerged from my being, you know, a Black person in the United States um, who sort of, I'm a millennial, you know, I sort of started really having a lot of uh, sort of forming who i was as a person sort of around 2012 around blm um you know black lives matter movement starting um with uh, trayvon martin um being killed by george zimmerman and i actually started graduate school in 2012. um and in 2013 i went to a protest in roxbury um in in, Bo- in the boston area uh, and i just marched alongside other people who were similarly frustrated uh confused um but also had a general sense of the inequality of the legal system, but seeing it so starkly in in George Zimmerman's trial and his non-conviction of killing Trayvon Martin, um, and then witnessing multiple moments of, of course, police violence that really sort of started to become commonly portrayed in the media um, following uh, Trayvon Martin's killing. so, So this project really emerges from really, my engagement and thinking with respect to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, But I was interested in understanding um, in the book how people who are impacted by the law routinely brought into the legal system as defendants, how they experience the legal system in court specifically. Um, And, you know, I think that as i was reading more in graduate school i was reading a lot of literature that focused on the perspectives and experiences of empowered actors in the court system so lawyers prosecutors public defenders and judges a lot of studies you know in the court ethnography tradition that really sort of privileged their perspectives on what's going on in the courts but really i was interested in the perspectives of people who are on the ground and impacted by the courts and understanding how their perspectives might differ different understandings and and knowledges that they have with respect to the legal system. And then also how they resist at the individual level um, and at the community level with respect to the profound power of the criminal legal system and particularly of the court system.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Matt. I, I, as I read this book, I was thinking about my role as a public defender and often how, much I felt like I was advocating for my clients and how much I felt like I was understanding their situations. But your book really brought out this, this interesting idea that um, we aren't often taking their perspectives as lawyers or listening to, or fully understanding that lived experience. And you start in the introduction, I thought with a real powerful story of your cousin, um, which was an interesting experience for you.
2: Yeah, it, it really was. And, you know, even though i'm a black person i grew up upper middle class my parents were both physicians and so i've been very fortunate to not experience personally legal violence in my life i've never been arrested i've never been pulled in court at the same time you know i've done things that you know like most of us right are illegal and criminalizable behaviors like uh you know smoking weed right in a state where it was not uh legal um but for people like my cousin um who grew up in a working class poor neighborhood in, in chicago um who I actually did not know before I saw him and happened upon him in court, you know, life is completely different. Um, And uh, his routine encounters with the legal system are something that, you know, I was afforded, uh, able to uh, escape um, for at least so far in my life. Um, And so you know, when I encountered my cousin in court, I actually was working um, with with a colleague of mine and a friend, um, Alex Winter, um, and we uh, were both we were both graduate students at the time, and we were interviewing uh, prosecutors, public defenders, and judges. And so, you know, my first beginning of interacting with sort of the scholarly literature on the courts was to contribute to sort of that tradition of thinking about the court ethic. Court ethnography from the perspective of empowered people—you know that work I think is really important and powerful—and um, you know we've published papers on on these data. Um, but when I encountered my cousin in court, I really wanted to know more about that. Really, sort of motivated my interest in, in learning more about the defendant's perspective. Um, and unfortunately, as I mentioned in the preface of the book, uh, my cousin passed um, from gun violence. Um, so. You know, I was never able to actually talk to him in any real depth about not just his experience in court, but his life generally. And so in in the book, I'm really interested in understanding, you know, the court process from the experience of people who are defendants, both disadvantaged defendants and also privileged defendants, which um, I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, But I'm also interested in understanding their everyday lives. Um, how their perspectives come to be and how they and why they ultimately diverge, as you were describing, from um, oftentimes the perspectives of their lawyers. Right. So, um, you know, in the book, um, before I bring us into the courts, um, I spend a lot of time in chapter one taking us through the lives, the backgrounds, the experiences, the families of the people um, who I got to know in the book.
1: Yeah. Maybe before we jump into chapter one, because um, I think this is something that kind of weaves throughout the book, well, really does. And you mention it as um, these principles of withdrawal, um, withdrawal as resistance, withdrawal as resignation. This is on behalf of defendants. So, defendants who are withdrawing from their, uh, figuratively, I suppose, from their attorneys, <laughs> either resisting or resigning to it. Uh, and, and then you also talk about this idea of delegation or. you know, these different experiences. And I'm wondering if you want to frame that before we jump into um, chapter one, because I know you get into greater detail later in the book, but frame those concepts first before we jump into those topics. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I think those are the main sort
2: of concepts that we can take away uh, from the book um, is, and and so I'll, I'll sort of preface this by saying that, you know, as a cultural sociologist, I think often cultural sociology tends to focus on sort of what, you know, an individual actor is doing in isolation, of course, drawing on cultural norms and, and broader sort of cultural uh, formations. But, you know, typically um, in the cultural sociology literature, there hasn't been much interaction with the relational sociology or relational theory literature, which tends to think about people as operating in relation to other people. And so much of what we do in our everyday lives as humans is anticipating, responding to, thinking about the possibilities of interaction with other people. And so um, these these two sort of uh, styles of interaction that I describe are relational. They are styles of interaction that are not just happening on the side of the defendant. So a defendant is not just withdrawing from their lawyer, but really the withdrawal relationship is both the defendant and the attorney falling apart and pulling themselves apart in the relationship and withdrawing from one another. And of course, you know, as you know, as a public defender, our former public defender, you know, uh, there's actually a formal term, right, at least from the perspective of lawyers where you can withdraw from defending your client, right. And um, and, and, you know, that's actually, it's funny, I, I actually didn't come up with the term withdraw with that in mind, but as I was sort of repeatedly over looking through my um, field notes and, and just the terminology that's used in court, I was like, oh, that actually matches perfectly, but it's yeah. happening on both sides, right? They're withdrawing from the relationship, whereas delegation, it's a mutual sort of relationship as well, and it's a coming together in the relationship. And from uh, the perspective of the defendant who's in a relationship of delegation, Here, it's an understanding and recognition of experience and inexperience, rather, with the law, um, and then therefore a desire to completely basically give uh, a lot of leeway and power to the lawyer and defer ultimately to the lawyer with respect to decision making. I mean, we can talk about the reasons why those things are different and why it tends to be, um, in my data, more common for or working-class people of color to be in relationships of withdrawal than uh, working-class white people and middle-class people being in relationships of delegation. Um, There are reasons for that. Um, But, um, yeah, I I could talk more about that now, or maybe I'll wait a little bit later. uh, Yeah,
1: because I think you walk through it in each chapter. You kind of – each chapter deals with some aspect of this. So I I think you framed it wonderfully. So – in chapter one, and you mentioned this already, you talk about the paths that lead one to be a defendant. And you really start by contrasting the stories of Tim and Ryan. You don't necessarily have to retell those, but who have to, two totally different experiences in the criminal justice system.
2: Yeah. So Tim, you know, he's a black man. He grew up um, in a majority black neighborhood in Boston. Um, And, you know, he is sort of the typical kind of defendant that we tend to think of in the media and the public imagination. Right. Um, Someone who's poor, who's struggling with drug addiction, um, who has a life um, or a childhood and adolescence of various forms of disadvantages, inequality, structural racism. And, um, you know, various vicarious forms of injustice to just from the people that he was around in the community and the surveillance, the police surveillance in the community that he lived in. Um, and then I contrast his case with Ryan, who I refer to and, and sort of give the reader sort of a beginning of insight into what I refer to as the privileged defendant, which we can think of as an oxymoron, right? How can you be privileged and a defendant? Yeah, but you know, I sort of frame the book in sort of this moment of what I refer to as the rise of mass criminalization. So, over the last forty years, you know, our carceral state has grown a lot. As people know, you know, we tend to refer to it as mass incarceration, but I use the term mass criminalization because it's not just that we've increased uh, our carceral our, our carceral system, um, but we've also uh, increased sort of lower level forms of engagement with the criminal legal system from arrest, uh, even before arrest, you know, stop and frisk, police stops um, to probation and things like that, right? So we have, you know, in the United States, um, in any given year, we have 17 million um, court cases in state courts. So that's a lot of cases. Of course, it's not 17 million people, it's 17 million cases, but that's a lot of people too, um, that we can imagine probably are going through the courts. And so this has impacted not just the targets of the system, poor people, and and black people in particular, and Latinx people and indigenous people, but it's also um, affected, and we can see this in incarceration rates, um, it's also in fact affected people who um, have uh, college educations um, and who are white. Um, Their rates of involvement in the system are slightly higher than they have been historically. And so I was interested in thinking about how does the experience of so-called privileged defendants differ from those of disadvantaged defendants? Because I think, in, in it and in the book, I show and argue that that really gives us a better sense of inequality, of the profound nature of inequality and the gravity of the difference. And so when I introduce Ryan in, in the beginning of chapter one, here I'm trying to give people an understanding of how privileged people get into the system in the first place. Um, because we might expect that, of course, you know, a lot of disadvantaged people are going to get into the system, not just because they're engaged in criminalized behaviors, um, because I show privileged people are too, but because of police surveillance, right? Their lack of access to private space and things like that that I talk about in chapter one. And so for Ryan, I show here's a person who grew up middle class, um, a little bit outside of Boston. He's a white man. Um, his parents, both college educated, well off. Um, but he, uh, beginning in high school, started using uh, various drugs, not just, al- not just drinking alcohol. And then ultimately, even though he uh, became an investment consultant for a period of time and, and went to college, of course, completed college and then became a, an investment consultant, he really struggled with addiction. Um, And that ultimately resulted in uh, various instances of being engaged with the criminal legal system. Um, And so part of chapter one is not just to show sort of the divergent paths to the court system, um, but also to really uh, encourage scholars not to just constantly sort of look to poor black neighborhoods and think, look at all of this sort of like social disorganization that's going on in these neighborhoods. Really actually, if we're really looking and caring about sort of, various forms of harms and, and and criminalizable behaviors, they exist in pockets of affluence as well, and are often sort of encouraged within these pockets of affluence too. Drinking, drug use, addiction, um, the difference is how we treat them differently on average. Um, it is really the difference between what's happening in um, many disadvantaged communities and, and privileged communities.
1: Yeah, and one thing that you, that you note really, I thought, powerfully in Chapter 1 was this uh, idea of how it's perceived or, or, or perception as well as important. And maybe I'll start with this. Uh, disadvantaged people, you say, kind of admit the tragedies of their lives, abuse, the neglect, CPS involvement, poor school performance, or you know, negative involvement with teachers. One, one idea remains fairly constant, which is alienation.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that's common across, right? Um,
1: across both. Uh,
2: right, right. Right. Um, so, you know, this, this broader sense of social alienation, um, and it may, it looks different for disadvantaged people than for privileged people. You know, there is a lot of social alienation, um, within, you know, families really a lot, often for privileged people, whereas disadvantaged people tend to be social, social alienation from teachers, from broader norms, right. Of middle-class society and expectations of jobs and, and sort of high status positions that you should go into, but still this all sort of constituted what I refer to and what, you know, sociologists uh, and social scientists have variously talked about in in different ways, you know, really from Durkheim and and even, you know, Weber, uh, various ways of thinking about sort of rupture or separation from society. Um, But this is a, this is a broader sort of form or feeling of alienation that exists in the lives of these people. um, And, uh, it is what often explains why they need and feel the need uh, to engage in various criminalized behaviors, either to cope with, you know, frustrations with family um, or friend, lack of sort of ties um, with uh, teachers and, and, and sort of empowered authorities who they feel alienated from, or as a way to sort of have pleasurable diversions, right, from the alienation that they feel in life. And so engaging with peers um, in ways that result in them You know, using drugs and things like that to try to get away from a life where they feel alienated from the rest of society. Um, And so, this is really sort of a profound story of, I think, what what happens across socioeconomic strata often in the lives of adolescents. And you know, what helps people get out of that is having sort of pro-social and positive coping behaviors, um, rather than sort of negative sort of coping behaviors that can. You know be harmful. drug use, of course, can be harmful, but not always. sometimes uh, drug use, you know if it's if it's done in a way where you're not dependent upon it can be okay. but really it becomes harmful when police and other punitive authorities start to identify you as a person who is problematic and then you have engagement with the criminal legal system, which then sort of leads to a repeated cycle of uh, of a problematic behavior.
1: Yeah. Um, it's reminding me, and I don't know if you know the sociologist Victor Rios, but yeah. um, Rios's experience himself as a former gang member, one time being beaten by the police for mm. stealing a car to live in because he and his friend had no place to live versus a police officer that took him at a different stage of his life out, I think to breakfast and said, Hey, you know, what are you doing? Like you could really be somebody. And he said that positive encounter, that second one helped motivate him to become a sociologist and you know move forward in his life. But
2: exactly. And you know, what we see in in chapter one here reflects that exactly. It's for a lot of the privileged people in the study, they have far fewer arrest experiences than the disadvantaged people in the study, even though they're engaging in a lot of the same behavior, um, both drug dealing and using. Um, across uh, socioeconomic strata. And so, you know, what the difference is, is that police and other empowered authorities are often giving privileged people second chances. They, just like uh, the privileged people themselves who are engaging in these behaviors, these empowered authorities also view these behaviors as maybe pleasurable diversions, right? And, you know, youthful sort of mistakes rather than the way that they view what's happening... uh, people who engage in these same behaviors who are disadvantaged as um, you know this is something where i'm not going to give you a second chance this is inexcusable behavior this is really a reflection of something inherent to your character or your community that's problematic and that should be police and so the difference there that we see is um, not just police but also you know parents trying to in various ways protect their children from sort of the negative implications of, of their behavior Um, that happens among the privileged that disadvantaged parents are unable to provide simply because of a lack of access to financial resources um, and the like.
1: Yeah. You mentioned that uh, in this chapter that, that privileged versus underprivileged people assign different meanings to these experiences, such as um, this kid Royale who at 14 wanted to take the burden off his mother for buying him nice things. So he's selling drugs Um, versus maybe privileged people who might take these same experiences and say, well, it was to deal with physical pain or pleasure seeking or something like this.
2: Yeah. You know, I think Royale versus Amanda, for example, I think is a great, uh, sort of contrast here. So as you mentioned, Royale, you know, grew up working class, uh, uh, you know, um, it was just him and his mom, uh, they were in New York, but Royale ended up moving to Boston later in his life. Um, But, you know, he witnessed a lot of violence in schools, uh, in his neighborhood. And then also, he just didn't have much money. And he saw his mom working really hard and, you know, to pay for various things. And he was like, ah, I really want, you know, a new pair of sneakers or a nice new backpack to go to school. I need to find other ways to pay for that because I see my mom struggling with bills. And so his uh, sort of emergence into sort of a life of dealing and using, um, really was precipitated by his desire um, to just have basic goods, right? Uh, which privileged people take for granted. Um, but also, and, and I talk about this in Royale's story, You know, some of it also was um, sort of a lure of the streets, right? Sort of um, an interest in right, uh, engaging with his peers in, in a way that was fun in some ways. And that's what really is much more common among the privileged when they engage in these behaviors. It's not emerging from any form of economic constraint or racial or racism, which I talk about also among the disadvantaged. Some of their engagement in criminalized behavior is due to racism, not just economic constraint. But for the privilege, it's very much about pleasure, um, about diversion, or about coping with some sort of pain, right? And so in Amanda's story, we see both of these things. We see Amanda as a swimmer. Who you know first uh, got injured in high school? Um, then she was using um, you know prescribed opioids, but then uh, started using uh, illegal drugs um, to deal with the pain. Um, and then when she went off to high uh, to college as a college swimmer, she found a boyfriend who she really liked and who was a drug dealer, and they really bonded ar- around their desire to sort of bring in drugs to the college campus and you know have parties with friends and be the cool kids who, you know, were able to sell drugs and host the parties. Um, And and that was really their emergence into drug dealing um, was not at all about, you know, affording anything or paying for basic needs. It was really just about uh, having fun.
1: Yeah. In uh, chapter two, um, you talk about the experiences disadvantaged defendants have with their lawyers. Um, Disadvantaged defendants seem to lump public defenders together. And there's really a profound mistrust you say among them.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm increasingly talking to more and more public defenders in Boston who have always been really fantastic. I mean, my ability to even get into uh, the Boston courts was very much um, uh, provided by um, CPCS, which is the Committee for Public Counsel Services in Boston. And I was able to embed in a public defender's office um, um, there. Um, And, you know, I always worried, (laughs) to be frank, you know, when I um, was writing the book, I I was a little bit worried, you know, what are public defenders going to think of the book? You know, a lot of the people who I'm talking to just don't trust them and feel that they're not representing them and and their needs and they're not listening to them. They're silencing them. They're coercing them in various ways. Um, But, you know, I think it was important to share And again, sort of the reason why I did the study, right, was I wanted the defendant's perspective, not the perspective of people who are empowered. And so, you know, as we enter into Chapter 2, and again, back later in Chapter 4, which I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, I'm really here sort of giving not just scholars and researchers an understanding of the defendant's perspective, but really providing that to public defenders. And one thing, though, that's really important for public defenders to understand is that clients... Um, rarely differentiate between staff public defenders. So public defenders who are paid by the government, who are salaried employees, who are often selecting into public defense on various sort of, you know, racial justice, sort of uh, economic justice sort of dimensions they really care a lot about, right, social justice. They're not differentiating between public defenders and court-appointed attorneys writ large. And so in Austin, 75% of the indigent caseload is uh, represented by private attorneys who are sitting court appointed. And then only 25% is public defenders. So the vast majority of people in my study and the vast majority of defendants generally who are poor, really have interaction mostly with bar advocates or court appointed private attorneys. And as I talk about in chapter four, Often public defenders and bar advocates can be different in in many ways. Um, And part of this has to do with their training and the like. Um, But so, you know, the the profound mistrust that I found um, is often characterized as mistrust of public defenders, but really it's mistrust of the broader indigent defense system. Um, And this mistrust arises from various uh, roots. Part of it has to do with experiences that disadvantaged people have in their communities. Um, Right. The policing and surveillance that they have had in their communities, the narratives happening in their communities of family and friends and neighbors who have been in the system and who have negative feelings about the system carry into these uh, individual level interactions with lawyers for a lot of disadvantaged defendants. But in addition, it's a critique really of a system where it seems like defense attorneys are friendly, having conversations with, eating lunch with. Um, repeatedly having professional relations with prosecutors. That seems problematic uh, for many uh, disadvantaged defendants on its face. Um, But then also they feel like public defenders also don't really have much, many resources. They seem to have a high caseload. They seem to be in court for many clients rather than coming in court for just one client at a time, right? Which they see private attorneys who are not sitting court appointed doing. Um, and then also there's a distance, a cultural distance and experiences of direct discrimination um, from some public defenders who, you know, maybe s- stereotype uh, poor black defendants in particular, uh, sort of are, you know, quick and, and rush conversations um, and don't seem to actually really deeply care or want to listen to their clients.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: I don't think you've been a public defender for long if you haven't heard most of these complaints from the defendants they often have they will tell you and you mentioned this in the book not only will they tell you they'll tell the court right Mm -hmm. and and that those and this of course comes up later but that they they, that nobody tends to treat these complaints with respect and you, you talk you give the example of tanya and molly but of molly was saying don't violate probation. You've got to obey these rules, et cetera, et cetera. Tanya's wanting to talk about the squalid conditions in the safe house where she was staying. And it's like, we're in inhabiting two different worlds and not looking and talking to each other.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, it was amazing. The, so Tanya is a, uh, a poor woman who's part white, part native American. Um, And Tanya, you know, someone who I really got to know well, and you know, for Tanya, like I, I, her lawyer didn't quite understand so many of the things that was going on in her life, and also the things that just mattered to Tanya, right? That didn't matter from the attorney's perspective because they weren't legal issues, right? So her issues, right, um, uh, with uh, her sober house were issues of, from Molly's perspective, who was her lawyer, of you just need to comply and stay in the sober house, but. For Tanya it was like, "Okay, but this sober house is run with mi- overrun with mice. The air conditioner's not working. Also, the people who run the sober house, uh, which later, and I actually don't talk about this in the book, um, but it's um, in my field notes. I just couldn't make it. But you know, later on, it turns out that this sober house was it was privately run, um, and it was intentionally trying to kick uh, women out um, by uh, basically, at least from Tanya's uh, knowledge." Uh, she was saying that they were uh, cheating or changing the um, the urine tests to make it look like they were uh, violating by using drugs so that they could justify kicking the women out of the sober house so that they could flip the sober house into a more profitable one for men. Um, and so, you know, those things are things where it's difficult, first of all, for a disadvantaged person to be taken seriously when they make these claims, right? Um, court is going to trust right, or defer really to the expertise of a sober house, whoever's running the sober house, to the lawyers, right, characterizations of events as well, especially probation who, you know, has interactions with, you know, identifying where people will go and what sober houses they will use. Um, And so, you know, it looks like, you know, a client who like Tanya, you know, she's been addicted to cocaine, you know, Tanya is someone who, you know, maybe if you looked at her the first time, you'd stereotype her if you're a middle class person, you know, you might stereotype her in various ways. You know, she's not someone who, you know, necessarily maybe is able to present herself in a way that she's taken credible by middle-class empowered authorities. And so for someone like Tanya to say, hey, it's overrun with mouse. Hey, you know, it's an air conditioning issue. Hey, like they're really sort of like cheating us on these urine tests. Like that's not taken seriously. And so her lawyer recognizes this, right? And that's part of the problem is, is defense attorneys often recognize the lack of credibility that their clients have and have to really choose like, what am I going to fight for and what's worth the fight? And so from her lawyer's perspective, um, we see in, in Tanya and Molly's story, it's like, hey, probation is actually a pretty good deal. If you just comply and just stay in this house, you know, for the next year or so, you will be fine. Um, but Tanya's like, look, like I'm trying to live a life, right? Um, and, and is really uh, frustrated by the inability of her lawyer to help her. And also the inability of her lawyer to even help her like figure out, uh, uh, this sort of more civil legal aspect of the case, right? It's not just about her and her specific probation issue, right? She wants to actually figure out how to litigate, deal with the fact that, you know, this sober house is doing all of these problematic things, right? That requires a different kind of lawyer. That requires interaction in the civil legal system, which, you know, uh, her public defender, um, who, who's assigned to her on her criminal case can't really
0: touch.
1: Yeah. It, um, one of the things you talk about is uh, resistance, this struggle over legal expertise about who should guide the proceeding and that, that defendants may come with experiential over professional knowledge. Um, what do you have to say about that?
2: Yeah. You know um, one thing that I hope people take away and I think, you know, increasingly as I talk to different um lawyers about this idea is there is increasingly, I think, a recognition that, um, you know, even though disadvantaged clients own cultivated legal expertise, as I refer to it, often does not align with court norms, right? So for example, a, uh, disadvantaged defendants' understanding of what constitutes, you know, reasonable suspicion for a stop or probable cause to ultimately make an arrest, right? And then they want to sort of file various motions to dismiss or suppress evidence on this basis, even though maybe a defense attorney recognizes and feels that, you know, a judge isn't going to buy it, a judge is pretty much going to just defer to sort of a police characterizations of events, right? Um, You know, Increasingly, there's an understanding that maybe actually we should, and and I hope this book helps to move us in this direction, actually think differently about court norms and sort of basic common deference to police um, and characterization of events um, and, and really sort of listen to the cultivated expertise of disadvantaged defendants who have routine interactions with not just specific police officers, but policing as an institution within their communities to understand really the profound constitutional problems um, of the way that policing is operating in in Black communities in particular and in poor communities and Latinx communities as well. Um, So, you know, I very much see cultivated legal expertise of defendants as accurate in many ways, even as it is rendered illegible or uh, discounted or silenced by court norms and practices, and even by people's defense
1: attorneys. They talk about, um, they talk about justice and social justice. And it's interesting as, as I was representing people, we would often refer to some of these people as jailhouse lawyers might be the, and I'm sure you heard the terminology going the other direction of the dump truck lawyer or the public pretender or some of these things that are used. But as you lay this out, it would be quite Herculean for someone to learn the law while sitting in jail or from their experience from watching court and to make what are social justice arguments that are quite persuasive if you step back to look at it from their perspective.
2: Oh yeah. I think it's quite uh, impressive, the fount of knowledge that people have. And you know, part of it, it's not just individuals who are sort of cultivating this legal expertise, right? It's narratives and cultivated legal expertise that is, that is moving around and shared within communities. You know, we can think here of um, sort of participatory defense, right, organizations like Silicon Valley Debug. There's a similar one in Boston um, where even though most of the clients that I spoke to, um, most of the defendants that I, I got to know weren't aware of this organization, this organization still might have, right, um, because of the way that they share knowledge, they have family and friends come in and go through sessions together of thinking collectively about how to beat a case and how to effectively engage with um, an individual's lawyer. And so you have people who are maybe the parents um, or family of people who've been involved in the system previously coming in to share their own expertise on what happened in their prior case. And so you have a collection of knowledges from uh, a community that um, can really be shared within the community. Um, and so it's not just individuals who are you know, independently observing uh, you know, court sessions and, and taking notes on their own or you know, in jail talking to a jailhouse lawyer. In addition to that, it's also a collective form of knowledge. And you know, one other thing that I, I, I definitely want to have come across in the book is the idea that this isn't just knowledge about court procedures. It's also knowledge about um, what constitutes even a good legal outcome in the first place. Um, So, you know, some of what's happening with cultivated legal expertise and knowledge is knowledge about how court punishments operate and what they mean in the everyday lives of people, specifically disadvantaged defendants. So, you know, a lot of what lawyers are doing is often thinking about mitigating a legal outcome that's in the favor of the average defendant in their minds, um, but the average defendant in their minds often is someone maybe who actually is not the average defendant in real life, and maybe someone who you know is, has a job or uh, you know lives in a neighborhood where there isn't constant police surveillance. And the problem there is um, a lot of the expertise or thinking around probation versus incarceration, for example, which I talk about. And and the idea that among disadvantaged defendants, actually, things that are thought of as good legal outcomes, like a probation sentence rather than an incarceration sentence, actually might be a bad legal outcome to many disadvantaged defendants Mm -hmm. because they may actually prefer to just get their sentence done, serve time in jail or prison and then return back to their communities without the constant threat of surveillance from the prob- from probation and then ultimately from policing that can pull them back into the system. So that's one other thing that I really wanted to sort of uh, highlight in the book was and encourage um, not just public defenders but also scholars to think about when they're thinking about the harshness of a legal outcome. Sometimes there may be uh, a reason why disadvantaged people um, prefer a incarceration sentence to a probation sentence because of the recognition that a probation sentence actually opens them up to more possibility of being involved with the criminal legal system even longer. And so here we have a problem of policymakers misunderstanding right the harshness of something that's thought to be an alternative, but really it's often something that pulls people back into the legal system and can be very punitive.
1: Thank you. In, in chapter three, you um, talk about, in contrast to all of this, how privileged defendants have a very different experience with their lawyers.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, privileged defendants have few uh, sort of interactions with the law to begin with. Um, and so oftentimes their case is a shock, um, not just to them individually, but also to their family and friends. Um, And so they have a lot of what I refer to as an experience, but what some privileged people who I got to know, like Ryan and others, Amanda and others, um, just referred to as, I'm so naive, I think, as Ryan says, uh, to the whole criminal legal process, I have no idea what's going on, right? This is in direct contrast, so I hear your dog, Um, this is in direct contrast to um, right disadvantaged people who have routine interactions individually and at the community level with the law. And so what we see here is actually a profound lack of knowledge. There's a lack of expertise about how the law works. Um, And so they're much more willing than to delegate expertise to a legal authority, such as their their lawyer, to give them advice. Um, And part of this is not just because they're inexperienced, but also because they have more reason to trust uh, their, their defense attorneys partly because their defense attorneys are chosen um, for many of them um, they can hire them uh, because they might have financial resources or even if they don't they might have social ties like an aunt um, who can serve as a lawyer or a family friend in the neighborhood who can serve as a lawyer um, or they even with public defenders if for some reason you know they find themselves um, you know out of a job you know at some point in their lives even if they have a um, and a college education and are generally middle class, they may be more likely to trust a public defender because they have a sense that public defenders may um, have cultural commonality with them, may share interests and understandings in life with them. And so they just have a much more familiar, engaged interaction on average with lawyers than disadvantaged people. Um, so it's not just their inex- inexperience, but also their sense and belief that they actually can trust these legal actors to look out for them and to look out for their needs.
1: And often you think you talk about that they have choices, um, the the ability to choose. They may have social circles where they can have lawyers step in or family to help, or maybe we we don't have to use the public defender. And that, that ability to pay for services kind of facilitates trust.
2: Yeah. Payment is, I think, the coin of the realm, if you will. It's like the sense that you know, I mean, and this is for the disadvantaged too, right? They feel that if they could only pay for a lawyer, then this is the thing that would change their uh, engagement with the criminal legal system. You know, there's this sense that the system is corrupt generally. And so payment and money is the thing that, that gets you good legal outcomes, um, especially payment for a lawyer who will then be more interested in working harder for you. Um, and, you know, for, for lawyers, to be frank, who are bar advocates, uh, so they have private paying clients and they also have indigent clients, you know, we could see reasons and, and why maybe they'll devote a little bit more time to their paying clients than to uh, the clients who, um, you know, they get paid only a certain amount per hour for working for them from this, by the state. Um, so there's very much a sense for both privileged people and disadvantaged people that payment really can get you a better legal experience. And so, yes, that's one uh, additional central sort of component of what explains higher trust among privileged defendants.
1: And you also also note uh, cultural similarities and that there are more positive engagements with the lawyers, more deferential treatment.
2: Yeah, and, and some of this also too comes in from the fact that privileged defendants often have family members with them in court. Um, who are even more higher status. Um, So, uh, you know, in many of the stories that I talk about among privileged defendants, whether it's like, you know, someone who's in their early 20s and their dad's with them or their or um, maybe it's, you know, um, you know, I mentioned one person who's actually working class, but his wife is middle class and is with him at all periods of time. You know, that cultural commonality can happen not just for the specific client, but also uh, the client's um, family or friends who are with them in court, the lawyer may really actually see as the person that they're really talking to, um, which which is really actually quite uh, surprising to me when I was sort of sitting and embedded in these attorney-client interactions to just see, right, in the moment, you know, as we're talking through a plea colloquy or whatever, to see, you know, a wife or an aunt basically be the person who is talking to, uh, the lawyer and negotiating with the lawyer and going through, you know, tell me what would happen if if this happens. And, you know, you saw there a lot of familiarity, comfort, and cultural commonality, um, which is not afforded, uh, in relationships uh, between disadvantaged people and their lawyers.
1: You, you contrast the experience of some lawyers who, uh, for privileged people who come prepared to court, um, often may not even or unprepared to court and may not even seem familiar with the case with the experiences of underprivileged people
2: oh yeah so yeah so this is the story um of chester and ryan right um so chester was um actually a court-appointed attorney so this is uh was ryan's i think third case in his life and at this point in his life even though he grew up middle class and he had a college degree and he was an investment consultant he now was without a job he was um, living off of his parents' income, basically. And uh, he was at that time in a halfway house. Um, and, you know, so here we have, right, um, an interesting case where we have someone who is actually in the moment, uh, seemingly poor, but does have access to various resources, has access to a parent's financial money, which he did not use to hire a private attorney. And um, and then has access, of course, to sort of uh, cultural commonalities and things like that with his lawyer. He dressed a certain way. Um, He also still had a belief that the system could work for him as a white middle-class man generally. Um, And so when he was interacting with Chester, who I'll tell you, you know, Chester actually is a lawyer who I've heard uh, different comments from uh, different public defenders. Chester is a bar advocate um, and, and public defenders have spoken about him as being, you know, a little bit, messy and uh, unprepared. And, you know, the scene that I talk about in the book, you know, he comes in and he is completely unprepared. He's late to court. And, you know, I think the average defendant, especially disadvantaged defendant would be like, this is my lawyer. Like, I can't trust this person whatsoever. Like I need to find another lawyer. Right. Yeah. Ryan is totally just like, eh, seems fine. I'm sure it'll be okay. And he has every reason to believe that. I mean, as a middle-class white man, he's he's probably right. It will be okay. And it turns out that it is okay. Right. He's He's, um, he, uh, is, is basically sentenced to a period of, uh, or actually to community service, actually, um, time served in community service, um, not even time served cause he was never in, in jail pretrial. Um, but you know, so, so what we see here is a complete deference to the expertise of a lawyer from a, a privileged person, um when everything really should expect and tell us that this person really should not actually defer to their lawyer. And I think this is actually a profound um, thing. And and this happens for for various clients like Wayne as well, um, who has a sense that maybe he shouldn't fully trust his lawyer, but he ultimately defers. And I think this is a a key takeaway from the book too, is the profound willingness of middle-class people to defer to lawyers as experts which, you know, as a cultural sociologist, this contrasts uh, markedly with what we see in other institutional spaces, like in interactions with teachers or doctors, where middle-class people are seen to be quite assertive and demanding and questioning of the expertise of teachers, doctors. Um, And so, um, you know, at the end of this chapter, I reflect on why is this the case? Why are middle class people so willing to delegate and ultimately defer? Part of it is inexperience. Just you know, in schools and workplaces and doctors' offices, middle class people have a track record of success. You know, they've engaged in these institutions all their lives and they feel confident in these institutions. Whereas in the court, you know, maybe it's a one-off DUI charge and they, you know, have no idea what's going on. Um, and then the other thing is you know the court the logic is different right the logic rewards deference, as i talked about in chapter 4 but the the logic of the court also suggests that you have a lot to lose whereas in schools and in doctors offices you really don't have much to lose as a middle class person at least you know At best, you can sort of get a doctor to work harder for you. And if they don't, then you can go and find another doctor because you have, you know, great health insurance and you have options. Or you can go and, you know, put your kids in another school. If you, you know, assert yourself with a teacher and they don't, you know, pay attention to you, you can say, all right, let me opt out of this school and go find another school. In the courts, you can't opt out. Um, And then also, you just have so much to lose as a middle class person um, in your everyday life. If you're you know, if you don't get sort of uh, sort of a, a slightly better uh, outcome. Whereas for a lot of disadvantaged people, you know, when they interact with the courts, you know, they've already lost so much in life. They have far more interactions with the court process. And sometimes for them, whatever comes of the legal sentence can actually be, uh, I mean, it can be consequential, of course. Um, but at the same time, Um, often there is a lot more interest in trying to contest police abuse and violence in their communities and recognizing broader aims of the court process rather than just simply mitigating their own individual legal
1: outcome. I'd love to talk with you about chapter four and you've mentioned it a few times and you call the chapter punishing withdrawal and rewarding delegation and you've alluded to it a few times. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So um, the institutional norms of the court as sort of, Uh, filtered through the attorney-client relationship, punish uh, attorney-client styles of withdrawal, like the ones among disadvantaged defendants, and then reward styles of delegation, like the ones among privileged defendants. And so in the chapter here, I really give a little bit more insight on the attorney side of the relationship. And I focus on the, so I did two in-depth interviews with each of the three public defenders who I had embedded with. Tom, Sibyl, and and Selena. Um, and then I also did uh, scores of interviews with other people who I did not embed with, other defense attorneys who I did not embed with, both public defenders and bar advocates. Um, and here I just asked them, you know, give me examples of clients who you liked. Why? Give me examples of clients who you disliked. Why? And a lot of it had to do with what I had been theorizing with respect to withdrawal, Versus delegation, the types of clients, the types of situations they had with those clients, very much uh, were, you know, clients they didn't like or, or disliked and didn't get along with, were much more in the withdrawal into resistance or resignation category, and then the ones that they really liked were uh, delegating to them, and there were rewards from delegating, such as, um, you know, defense attorneys saying, "Hey, I'd be happy to help you seal your case later on. Just give me a call." Um, you know, let's try to figure out how to like change where your probation, um, which courthouse you have to, you know, go to report to probation. Um, you know, let me try to get you some mental health services, things like that. Things that are were afforded to people who delegated, but were not afforded to in conversations that did not happen with uh, clients who who withdrew.
1: And I, I want as I read your book, I thought of an experience of mine, which was. I represented a Mexican-American defendant on a death penalty case, and he had been represented by four public defenders who were white. And when I talked to them about the client, they said, he's going to be the most difficult client you've ever represented. He's Mm -hmm. difficult, hard to work with, combative. And I met him and he said, are you going to be like every other lawyer I've ever had who doesn't listen to me, doesn't care about what is happening in my life? And I learned to rep, you know, I'm a white person. And so I learned in representing him that I had to gain some trust. And I remember one moment that was a tipping point. I think I went to visit his family and I knocked on the door and I, nobody answered and I went to the gate and I knocked and I heard a party kind of going on in the back and I knocked and somebody (laughs) opened the door, the gate kind of slightly and said, who are you? And I said, (laughs) Are you a cop? I think he said something like that. And I said, uh, you know, I'm I'm Floyd's attorney. And they said, oh, Floyd's attorney. Come on back. And as we ate chili Rayano together, as we talked about Floyd, um, and I kind of crossed a bit of a cultural barrier, I, I, I don't think I ever lost my client's trust after that. Mm. But, and I think that's in your conclusion, you have some takeaways and some suggestions, which I think this story at least came to my mind as I was reading this book as what maybe you're some of the things that you're looking for.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I really like that story. Thank you for sharing it. Um, and I love that you said sort of, sort of, there was this moment when things went in a different direction, right? I think that very much encapsulates one sort of main thing that I want people to understand from the book is, you know, it's really about these, at the individual level, these moments that can really sort of build, toward trust, and then moments that can really build toward distrust. And in the conclusion of the book, I talk about how this happens very early on, right? Very early on, clients are looking at assessing their lawyers, trying to see, is this a person who I can really trust with a very substantial... That meaningful and important moment in my life and someone who I can really share all the intimate details of my life with, right? The eternal client relationship is so strange. How many relationships do we have where you literally know nothing about another person, right? But you meet them and now you have to share like all of the intimate details of your life, maybe crimes that you committed, right? Um, that's strange. And that requires a lot of trust. And so, um, you know, I think the example that you gave is one thing that I do suggest at the sort of level of the attorney-client relationship is sort of engaging more, sort of along and in, in trying to understand your client, going to visit your client, uh, getting to know your client's family and friends, um, and doing this very early on. So in in Boston, you know, uh, the attorney uh, uh, your assigned counsel it attaches that arraignment. Um, I know some places a little bit later, um, but arraignment can be really quick, right? It can be. You know, a defense attorney looking at uh, the police report and then briefly chatting with their client, maybe, and then trying to make some argument for bail um, and then giving them a card and and saying, "Okay, I'll talk to you later. But I think that moment needs to be very far more involved. And also that moment maybe is a moment where courts can think about possibly allowing clients to choose their lawyers. Um, So I also talk about attorney choice as important. Um, so in Boston, you know, in the average courtroom, say, during arraignment, there might be four uh, potential attorneys that a client is going to be assigned to. And right now what happens is the clerk randomly assigns people. Um, instead, potentially, we could allow clients to have choice. And I think so much about actually the, the what happens when a privileged um, client is choosing and hiring a private attorney Yes, it's about payment and there's a sense that payment is protective and it allows you to have an insurance policy. You can opt out of the relationship, pay someone else. But also there are instances where I talk about, especially in Amanda's case, for example, where a lot of the times this is actually about um, just feeling that you are in control of your life and you being able to select an attorney rather than an attorney being assigned to you helps you feel. Like you are able to be in control of your life, um, so I think those things matter in the dynamics of the attorney-client relationship itself. But I also talk about in the conclusion, sort of uh, two other levels of change that I think should happen um, that I'd be happy to talk about. But I'm curious what your next question is
1: before. Yeah, I- go ahead, and you can talk about those two and, yeah. and then you can conclude.
2: Okay, so um, you know I think beyond sort of what's happening at the attorney-client relationship, um, one thing that I talk about and sort of theorizing um, the attorney-client relationship is the fact that the relationship is embedded in broader relationships and in broader institutions, right? And so the institutional norms of the court also need to change as well as broader society. So at the institutional level, um, in addition to courts maybe uh, introducing choice in court-appointed lawyer assignment, They could also experiment more with sort of procedural justice types of courts and principles, um, face-to-face communication with judges. A lot of what's happening here is a feeling that they're, that, uh, defendants feeling that they're being silenced by their lawyer, right? Um, and so allowing more opportunities for speaking up, also allowing potentially more opportunities for motions to suppress or dismiss evidence to actually be heard, right? Rather than, uh, defense attorneys, uh, feeling that judges aren't going to buy whatever the motion is and therefore not pursuing them. So shifting norms around the validity of exercising uh, certain motions, I think is really important. So this would be pushing up against what you know probable cause means, right? Um, this would be pushing up against what police bias means in a community, right? What does it mean for a police officer to be biased, right? Can we think about moving beyond sort of individual level police bias to policing as an organization in a neighborhood being systematically biased and bringing motions on those grounds more commonly. Um, And then at the societal level, you know, I think broadly just thinking about removing the criminal courts from from the business of adjudicating various sort of criminalized behaviors, I think is a, a general way that we need to move forward. So, um, here I'm thinking about various alternatives to criminal courts, such as restorative justice programs, like, uh, you know, the peacemaking, uh, program, uh, in New York, um, neighborhood courts here in San Francisco, um, which, um, don't use uh, criminal legal actors. Instead, they use ordinary people in the court. Um, and then also just sort of moving toward a world where, um, these criminalized behaviors are less likely to begin with. Um, so what does it mean to reduce uh, the various harms and social problems that bring people into the court in the first place? It means investing in great better education, right? Um, you know, a lot of the alienation that I talk about in chapter one emerges from um, teachers who just aren't that great uh, with their students. It emerges from communities that are facing and dealing with poverty and violence. And so reducing the harm here would mean investing in social services, uh, various forms of education and support, violence interruption programs and the like, various institutions and organizational community level organizational capacities that have not been invested in, in the same way that we've invested in courts over the past 40 years.
1: Well, thank you, Matt. We've taken up quite a bit of your time. Um, What project are you working on now? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh,
2: COVID, uh, pending, um, I'm working on, uh, one project where I'm, I'm looking at courts in uh, Santa Clara County here, um, in the Bay area. Um, so it's a comparative ethnographic project. Um, and then another project that I actually started, uh, last year, and it's a longitudinal study where I'm looking at, uh, legal socialization. So, um, in chapter four of the book, you know, I you know, talked in detail with um, Selena, Sybil, and Tom about why do they even want to become lawyers in the first place? Um, and then how do they feel about being public defenders, right? Like, how did it differ from what they thought being a lawyer would be like? And so in this study, I'm me and, and my research assistants, we've done a first wave of interviews with people who are very serious about applying to law school. We did that last year. And so we're going to follow them this year after they finish their 1L year, follow them again and, and interview them in their 3L year, and then later um, after they finished uh, law school. And we're asking them questions about what were their motivations to go to law school, and then we want to see how that changes over the time, how the legal socialization process from law school, but also as they enter into their careers, modifies, changes their uh, motivations, and the possibilities that they think, the law could afford for bringing about social justice.
1: Well, As someone who teaches law students, I I will definitely look that up. It sounds like a wonderfully interesting project. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.